Okay, are we good to go back there on the, okay, excellent. All right, well, so a lovely, lovely week. We had tons to go. We had first and second, or we had second Chronicles 10 and 11 and first Kings 13. And then we had a lot of review time in chapter 12 of first Kings also. So we, there was a lot of things to go through, a lot of observations to be made. Everybody's nodding their head. But, you know, the interesting thing to me about the difference um, between different kinds of inductive Bible studies is, is the, um, the type of literary work that you're in really does dictate what you're going to be spending most of your time doing. So what did you, have you discovered at this point about doing a historical book like this? What are you spending most of your time doing? Pardon? Looking at people and events. And in doing so, it's a, it, it's, a t it's a very different way of gathering information because rather than looking so much for key words, you're looking for major events of significance. Now, when you're talking about a historical book like this, I think it will be helpful to us to just talk about some of the specifics about, you know, you know kind of what is the intent of the the writing of any particular book. So I want to cover Chronicles with you today because it's an interesting um, book in itself in this. Now here's some things I dug up on this. And what I did is I went into the front of my inductive Bible study Bible that Kay has written. And in there I went through and just read her, her, her introductory instructions that she does on each of those two books. So if you have an inductive Bible study, uh, Bible, you can do that yourself. And I went in there and I just picked out two or three points that I thought were noteworthy for us to keep in our minds as we're doing our homework in the books of Chronicles. So the first thing I want to I want to say is, you, you know, at this point in our storyline, we've come to a very major event. What is most major at this point of where we are in the study of Israel? The division of the two kingdoms, exactly. We've hit a place where the kingdom is now divided. That's the major thing that we're seeing going on here. And so as we first are introduced to these two kingdoms, what is it that we're seeing seems to rise to the surface information-wise about each of those two kingdoms? What, what's going on in, in the... The northern kingdom <laughs> The, okay, very good. So right away you see that the, the northern kingdom under uh, Jeroboam is already into false god worship. So that, especially when you're studying the word of God from the perspective of trying to learn where did they go wrong, because what we know historically is they're in their captivity at this point. So what we need to know is why are they in that captivity? What got them there? Because they don't, when they come out of that captivity and they return back to the land and rebuild their temple and reestablish themselves on the land, they're going to want to not make those same mistakes again, right? So the kingdom is divided. The north is, is already establishing itself under a false worship system, which we know is going to be a problem. How many of us in this room, without ever knowing anything else further in the Bible, at this point would say, I think they're headed back to captivity? Yeah? 
Would you not? I mean, already. And, of course, God is very patient, and he takes his time about bringing that kind of judgment. But it is already a pretty big clue that there's a, there's a serious problem going on in the north, those northern ten kingdoms, ten tribes. All right, the other two, what do we see? At this point, what do we see? He's doing pretty good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's beckling. And it, regarding the temple and their worship of God, what are they doing? Are they holding fast to the oracles of God and the commandments of God? Yes, they are. So. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay, so what we have then is this division. We already see the spiritual uh, temperature, basically, of each of these two kingdoms that is already being established at this point. Um, And what what we're going to be seeing in the book of Chronicles now, once the kingdom is divided, is one of those two kingdoms is is going to become the more dominant subject matter. Guess one, which one it probably will be? Judah. Why is that? That's the one that's initially following God. Okay, so in part it's because they are following God and? All right, it's the lineage through which the Savior will come. And regarding the house, whenever God was speaking, giving prophetic promises to each of these individuals through what we saw through David and then to Solomon and then to even Jeroboam, right, an offer of a covenant, what did God say about that place of Jerusalem? That's the place he has chosen. It's the place where he has placed his name, right? And so for that's another quality to why that, seem, that was, is going to become the dominant one. So just note in your brain, or you might want to make yourself a note, in your, even on your observation worksheets, that from this point onward of, in Chronicles, Judah is going to be the dominant subject matter. And so that, that doesn't kind of catch you by surprise. And you do, for some reason, there's, there, if you're like me, it's like, well, what's going on with the rest of them? How come we're not talking about them? So just know that what it is is God is going to follow in his record of the Chronicles. They're, they are following the record of the kings. And the, the kingdom which is most significant is the one which contains the house of God and the place of God. But we're not there yet. Yeah. yeah. True, true. But, and the whole reason for that is back to square one because it's the place God chose, and therefore he's going to protect that, right? So we're going to be following that lineage, okay? I know. Is that any different, Margaret, from what God has promised to you and I and all of us today? Has God not said to you and I even today that if you will walk with me faithfully, I will support you, I will bless you, I will be with you, I will uphold you, I will hold you even, he says. I will uphold you, I will go before you, I will hem you in from behind. Does I mean, so those promises of blessing and of... Um, 
basically right living. The, all those things are promised to you and I as well, that God will be with us. And we also have all the promises of, et- of the eternal things, right? Mostly what we're focusing on with Israel in the promises are the temporal things of this, wor- of this earth. So you do need to make sure you kind of keep those two in your mind separate, that they're, he's spe- uh, primarily focused on the covenant of Israel and the people upon their land. And the things that God will do for them in their kingdom, right? So in that regards, those things are truly um, specific to Israel itself and to that nation at that time in history. However, the, the undergirding principles of God and his relationship with humanity on the whole still carries the same, the same message to all of us, and that is that if you will love me, if you will obey me, if you will follow me, then I will be with you, and I will bless you, right? All right, so yes, Jeroboam is very disappointing. I know, we're going to get there, yes, I know. It still didn't turn him, I know. Okay, so the first point in Chronicles, when you're looking at Chronicles, is it's go, from this point forward, we're going to see it primarily focus upon Judah, Okay just so that you now are aware of that. Number two, they specifically follow Judah's relationship to the Lord and his house. Now, if you haven't, you know, we can get tangled up in events of what's going on and get, and they're they're very interesting, but sometimes we focus on the wrong thing about it. So you want to try to make sure that you stay focused upon the point that God is writing to them uh, it, this record is given to us, and the, everything that's being said about other events pertains to what is their relationship to God and to God's house, okay? Because it's that relationship which is the essential. So anytime you're looking at things, you might say, well, this is really cool. Let's do this list about the man of God. Let's do this list about the, the old prophet. Let's do this list about, you know, one of the kings, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, which we did all those things this week. But... But the, the bigger picture you don't want to lose sight of is what is going on with God. When we're done today, I want to kind of go back over this and, and talk about what are we learning about God at this point. Uh, what are the things, the qualities and the, the characteristics and the, um, uh, the, just the power of God in all of this? What do you see that you've learned about him and his character and what he is doing? Okay, the other thing here is that the Chronicles are supplemental. Did you know that? They're actually supplemental to 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Samuel. So your primary historical records and the, the stronger historical um, sequence of orders and the specifics about it and how it happened and when it happened, those are all primarily going to be gained in 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Samuel. So Chronicles, however, comes in and it focuses primarily on the king of that nation, Judah, and their relationship to God. So it's more, I don't want to say superficial because it's actually the higher calling of what we're trying to attain to. But Chronicles cannot stand alone in in a historical understanding of what's going on with the king and the kingdom. So you just you need to know that, that it's the addition. It's, it's, uh, Kay says in the front of her book, it's like um, the gospel, in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Chronicles is to those other, four, other books of Kings and um, Samuel as John is to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
where John kind of fills in some, some of the smaller things. Do you guys re remember when we did that? We talked about uh, the Gospels. You have to take John and you fill it in to the other storylines. But, but in order to really know John fully, you need to go to the other Gospels to get the rest of the story and to get more of the storyline, to say where were they before, what was going on historically, and what was going to happen next. And then you take your John's information and you lay that into your Matthew, Mark, and Luke information, and then you get the picture. That's what you do with Chronicles. You take Chronicles, and once you've looked at First and Second Samuel or or First and Second Kings, whichever has that story. And once you've looked at that, then you take Chronicles and you look at it and you lay it into that story. So it's it's the icing on the cake. Does that make sense? I like that analogy. The God just gave it to me. <laughs> I was inspired. <laughs> the icing on the cake is Chronicles. Okay, so now you know it's the supplement. Uh, first and second, Chronicles has gaps of time. That's another thing you need to know. Chronicles is not chronological. <laughs> okay. Sounds like it should be, but it isn't. <laughs> okay, and so they have time gaps. And we figured that out, I think, when we did... Um, the time when we saw Solomon uh, uh, institute the, the uh, temple, and then he had 13 years of building his house, and then the vision came. We did not figure that out by looking in Chronicles. We had to look at Samuel, and we had to put, pull in all the other pieces of what was going on and then lay Chronicles in on top of it to see that. And so that's the point they're making. There are time gaps with Chronicles, so you just need to be aware of that, Okay. I think those are just little tiny tidbits of insight I think that will be helpful to us as we are continuing in this journey through these things, okay? All right, so there's that. Now, the other thing we want to do real quickly is go back to our at-a-glance chart. We, how many of you have been keeping up on your at-a-glance charts? Doing a good job on that? Because these things are so helpful. Um, Kay did one this time, though, that was slightly different than what I have been doing on my uh, more extensive one where 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 my at a glance chart here has every single chapter title right and then I'm trying to match up because I've done two columns and on one column I have kings one columns I have chronicles and then I'm trying to by using a watercolor mark with my computer I'm, be, I'm trying to match up which chapters go to which you know as far as the matching up of those two accounts all right but now Kay in her uh, teacher's notes to me this this particular week, they went in and did this at a glance chart where they took it in little chunks, like segments, right? And so I wanted to go through that with you because I did think it was pretty cool the way that she did that. She lists 1 Kings 1 to 4. What do you think 1 Kings 1 to 4 covers in a big uh, in a big way? Not details, but what in the whole, what happens in those first four chapters? Yeah, there you go. So Solomon, uh, his kingdom is established. And what matches up with 1 Kings 1 to 4 is 1 Chronicles 1. So now you can see why, we, why I said just what I said a minute ago. Chronicles is simply the icing on the cake. They take the, the primary focus about the temple and about 
the worship of God, and that's their primary emphasis in that book. And so you get cha one chapter compared to four in 1 Kings. Okay? Now you go into uh, 1 Kings 5 to 8. The next major thing, once his kingdom is established, is what does Solomon do? He builds the temple. Exactly. So second, next segment here is Solomon... Built the temple. Okay, and that is matched up with Chronicles 2 to 6. Then the next segment is what? What did we see then follow once he uh, established the uh, temple, once it was built? Then what? There you go. He's basically, he's reigning, right? Solomon's reign, and then it concludes with what? His death. So, his reign and death. That really knocks us down very small. Then, it, then we hit 1 Kings 12, and what happens? We've switched to a different king, right? We've moved on to a new king. So now, if you are trying to make segment divisions for your at-a-glance chart, what would you do with chapters 1 through 11? Solomon. Pretty easy, huh? It's going to be titled Solomon. That's your segment division. Chapters 1 through 11 of 1 Kings is all about Solomon. So that would be a segment division because then we're going to enter to a new king. So with that said, now what you can be doing is paying attention to how many chapters are spent on any one king, and you can do segment divisions by kings. This king is talked about in these chapters, now this king is in these chapters, now this king is in these chapters, and that will be a, a one of your ways of having a segment division. Um, you also could divide another segment division by based off of what we're going to hit here with the chapter 12. What happens in 1 Kings 12 that was our next major thing? After the death of Solomon, the kingdom divides. Okay, and then we have two kings. Let's name them. The first one is who? Rehoboam. And where does he reign? He reigns in Judah. And then the next one is um, Jeroboam. And where does he reign? In those northern ten kingdoms, but what, and how does the scripture refer to them? Israel. Now, is that not confusing? To a Bible, a young Bible student? Wait, 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 wait. Okay, I thought it was Israel before. Yes, it was. It's still Israel. Why do you think those ten northern uh, tribes retained the title Israel? They got the largest share of the, of the nation, and therefore they got to retain the title of being called Israel. Uh, <laughs> well, not really, because he's in with Judah. Judah and Benjamin. 
Not in there. But remember what I said earlier. You have to go into all your, all your records. And in some of the records, it says Benjamin and Judah. I know, because you're right, in Judah. Well, we, you could put in Judah and Benjamin, but the thing is, how does God see these, these, this divided kingdom? Does he see it in three or two? Two. So, so here's what happens. That's why he calls it one. What, is, what makes Judah and Benjamin one kingdom? Well, there Judah is bigger, and and who is Benjamin to Judah in the picture historically of what's going on here? They're under the support of that king. So you have one king for those two, and you have one king for the other ten. That makes it two. That makes the two one. It makes the ten one. And that's why it's referred to one. And in the titling of it, they simply call it Judah it, to distinguish it. And Judah contains what of significance to us? Temple. The temple. So that's why, Margaret, you kind of have to just go, be okay with the fact that poor Benjamin got slighted with not being called. But you know what? Benjamin doesn't have the temple. And God didn't choose the land where Benjamin is as his place that he's chosen for them to worship. That's why. So Judah, So just, just but delight in the fact that God got the glory because it's Judah. All right, so <laughs> uh, Jeroboam reigns in Israel. It's funny what we, uh, we sometimes focus on on things like that. Okay, so this gives us now, let's look for another segment division. Okay, the first segment we saw was Solomon. We hit 1 Kings 12 and we see kingdom divided. So now at this point, is there another segment division that you might be able to, it'd be a very large one, but what might you see as a beginning of a new segment? The first 11 uh, chapters are what? Uh, they are Solomon, yes, but now skip Solomon, go bigger. The United Kingdom, the United Israel. So here you have chapters 1 through 11, United Israel, starting with chapter 12 you have the divided kingdom or the divided Israel. Okay, so that would be another segment division. Pretty easy one, huh? Now that you're see it <laughs> now that we've talked about it <laughs> but you know sometimes segment divisions are a little more challenging and I think sometimes we don't even we're so busy trying to get our homework done that we don't take the time to look at those things and I just think they're kind of important because particularly if <clears throat> if you can kind of memorize that in your mind for first kings if you're looking for something of significance and you you know the storyline you're in by knowing your segment divisions, you'd know at least where to start. <laughs> okay, I don't need to look at the first 11 chapters because that's about Solomon. It wasn't Solomon. It was one of those other kings. So somewhere from chapter 12 on. That's, that narrows it down a little bit for you, right, in your thinking. And it, the, some of those segment divisions, they're just little clues that help you to, you know, kind of break it down or compartmentalize information, Right. Okay, and the first 11 are all about Solomon, so that would be helpful as well. If you're ever needing information about Solomon, you know you only have to look in 1 Kings, the first 11 chapters. That's where you're going to find your information in that book, okay? All right, so now let's go on and, and look at what we did in uh, chapter 10 and 11 of Second Chronicles this week. So I want to very quickly just talk about the theme I am not going to go through every paragraph with you 
on these two chapters because we really want to try to spend most of our time today in uh, First Kings. Those sto the storyline in there is so good. And I already had at least one request <laughs> uh, specifically. <clears throat> and I kind of knew that would be the case, that that would be where our interests would lie. <clears throat> okay, so let's start with Second uh, Chronicles 10. Open up your observation worksheets there first. And tell me what in Second Chronicles was your major events that were taking place. There were two or possibly three that you should have seen. Well, who is the storyline? Who are the major characters in chapter 10? Okay, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. These are the two who are going to vie for the kingdom, right? And it, at some point, we're going to see the kingdom split over these two. What is the major subject of, that's going on here? The tribes end up dividing. Now, tell me, why are these tribes going to end up dividing? What is the issue here? Yes. Okay, so this is very interesting, though. Were there any insights when you looked at this that you gained even about Solomon through what we saw going on here in this storyline? That he was a pretty harsh ruler himself. As a matter of fact, so harsh that the people came to his son when he was about to take the throne and said, please lighten the burden on us. Lift the yoke for us. The burden that you've placed on us to serve you as our king is too much. Um, and so in that story then, we see that Rehoboam is going to have to make a decision about this, right? So and this also is an awesome study line to cover. What's going on here with Rehoboam? What does he do? He does. He goes to two different possibilities for counsel on how to handle the people's request. Um, I don't think I would have had that big of a, of a struggle about this request, would you? I mean, if it had been me and I were the one taking on the, the role of lead, think of any job you have. If you're an office manager or if you're, you know, in a group or a club and you now take on the position of being the leader and the group comes to you and says look we have this problem this is under the previous leadership we had these issues can we try to address these and fix them and lighten it we're not saying do away with it but we're saying can you lighten it can you make our lives less miserable right what would you say to that kind of a request no, Sarah, you and Rehoboam had the same advisors. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Sarah, I know you, you would, you would have said, of course, and let me just remove it all. <laughs> I'll just take care of you all together, Carrie. Yes, you do. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And there has to be a balance, don't you think? I mean, honestly, consider when you think about the running of a government, uh, of, of a nation, of a people, or of an organization, right, business, um, there, 
there has to be some kind of rules in place, right? There has to be, and there has to be some kind of standard of expectation on the part of those who are participating in it, correct? I mean, so there has to be something that says, look, this is what we stand for, this is who we are, this is what we want to accomplish, and in order to get that done, we have to do this and this and this, absolutely bare minimum, right? However, with Solomon, what was he doing? Was he doing bare minimum? Oh my goodness, this man, when we, when we studied Sheba's uh, visit to him, the Queen of Sheba coming to visit, the decadence blew her away. It took her breath away. That tells you how much the harsh treatment had been as, of his expectations upon his people in that time. That's right. Be nice to folks. To a de- to the measure that it does not hurt the mission. There's a, in the military, we call it the mission statement. You have a mission statement. The mission statement says you have to do these certain things. Uh, a, a president has the same thing. This is, a king has the same thing. He has this mission statement. This is what needs to be done to protect our borders, to keep our nation safe, to, and to make our, our infrastructure function. Yes. I know. No. Well, she didn't see it because she didn't see the harsh labor that was required on their part and the standards. But what she did. But what she did see when she said that was what. And that the infrastructure was there. And wow, wouldn't that be a blessing to have if it were in my country? But he wasn't using it right. That's right. No. I haven't. Well, one of, the way, one of the ways we know that he is fairly young, I mean, they all come to their kingship fairly young. They don't, as opposed to America where we elect older men for our president, they elected young men, so to speak, elected, meaning they came to generally when they were very young because they wanted one uh, instituted as their king and they wanted longevity for continuity. I mean, so that was their goal was to have continuity, although... Often that didn't happen, but that is what they, their goal was. So they often did. The other reason why you probably are thinking he's young is because who does he consult? The young men who are his buddies, basically, that he grew up with. So that's where you get that from. And so it's a, it is absolutely a legitimate insight. It's, it, it's true that he was probably young. Young not as an, a young child, but a young man. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's not very young. Huh. Well, I don't know. I don't know. That, that sounds kind of old to me for a king to come in. Uh, and and uh, his father, Solomon, did live a long time, though. I mean, he had a 20-year a, a reign. So I don't know. You have to not, but you know what? It really doesn't matter. What we know is he was referred to as a young man, and the young, uh, these young men who had been raised with him or had been his accompanied friends, basically, uh, were the two groups. So we have two groups of people he goes to for counsel, right? The first group is called the 
the elders. What does that tell you? Right. So there's kind of, I think it's very interesting because this is going to fall, this, this precedes the storyline that we get to in 1 Kings 13, where later we're going to see an old prophet uh, with our man of God who is obviously younger than he. And, and we see, all, again, a conflict there or a, or a storyline that's presented where age seems to have some kind of a factor in whether or not someone will or will not listen and whether or not it's expected. On the whole, who do you think is the wiser one to listen to when you're trying to come up with l very important life decisions? People who are more experienced, the older people. Generally, by rule of thumb, that would be true. But w what did you see happen in 1 Kings 13? Was the old prophet the wise one for him to have followed in that story? N no. So here's very interesting. Kay had us look at some cross-references. So let's look at those real quickly just so that we can say we touched on them a little bit here. Um, you, uh, 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 Proverbs primarily. And I love the fact that she stuck with Solomon's, a lot of Solomon's writings. Because as we now know, and I've had a, I had an interesting um, question posed to me this week um, by someone who, who was saying, you know what, I'm not sure I really want to study Solomon now because, you know, he, he didn't really seemed to love the Lord in the way that was appropriate. And um, since his heart wasn't fully committed to God like David was, why would I want to study his writings? So, how, so okay, I know, I know for, <laughs> but tell me what would, because it was a genuine, it is a genuine and sincere question, and it makes, makes sense why you might go there in that thinking. What, tell me what might you want to say in reply to that. There you go. Okay. We know scripture clearly tells us Solomon was given specifically wisdom. Now, it was wisdom to rule the people, but what we also see is it was the kind of wisdom that the whole world renowned. It, it became world-renowned. People came from everywhere to hear his wisdom. So his wisdom was indeed wisdom, right? Now, what's the difference between, though, having wisdom and knowledge and insight and in having relationship with God. Is there a difference? Can you have wisdom without having relationship with God? Sure. Yeah, absolutely you can. Now, the, the, the decision here in Solomon's life was, I have all this wisdom and God has given it to me, but now am I going to apply it? Am I going to take it from here and make it here and have, make it be out of the issues of my heart, then I am going to worship God because of what I now know is true. But with Solomon, what we saw is he did not do that from what we can tell in scriptures, that the last word God gives to us on Solomon is that he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So it seems apparent that he did not take the information, the knowledge that God had given him, although it is supernatural knowledge, it's supernaturally given, and therefore it's absolute truth. So his knowledge does not cha change and become untruth just because he didn't make a transition into a walk with God. Yes? I was struck with this as something that I knew, but I guess I never put together, and that was the fear of the Lord, which is clearly missing in a lot of what we're seeing in Israel right now. Yes.
Very interesting. And you know what? This is interesting because Jeroboam had a, had a, um, a word from God also, a direct prophecy brought to him through uh, the prophet who said, God is going to give these kingdoms to you, right? And God personally invited him into the same covenant that he had invited David into, which was, if you will follow me, if you will obey me, um, if you will keep my commandments and statutes, I will secure your kingdom for you, right? Because it's, it's specifically about the land and about the kingdom at this point in this relationship. Um, but in that, he had knowledge and he had direct knowledge because it wasn't just like, you know, a passing thing. This was the Lord actually spoke to him through the prophet. And yet what did Jeroboam do with his knowledge? That's right. He, he, he absolutely cast it aside. He did not make application. What did we see Solomon do? The same exact thing. He w systematically went through everything, everything that he handled and touched and did was contrary to God's word in some way or another. Everything he did was, was a violation <laughs> down to whose house he built first, right? I mean, it's just an amazing revelation to me that, that we've seen this. But does that nonetheless take away from the words that he has written for us in scripture? Yes. And so I, I look at Solomon, I look at what he writes here, and then just say to myself, ooh, did I follow that? Exactly. First of all, we don't want to go the same wayward path that Solomon went. However, Interesting to me, remember a couple of weeks back I read an article that talked about all the different systematic systems of, of reasoning that he attacks and he, de and he basically debunks. He goes through the Epicureanism and the Stoicism and the, I can't remember all the ones, but it talked about the various, the various kinds of Greek philosophies and so forth that were going around at the time. And when he goes through Ecclesiastes, when he goes through and also you kind of see it in the Proverbs as well, he actually approaches things first from that human reasoning of that particular um, philosophy. And at the end of his conversation to himself, what does he end up saying? But there is nothing better than to love God and serve him, yeah. right? <laughs> so, and this is a repeated theme in his, in his writing. So he he does do a really good thing for us, I think, in his writings, and that is he takes the world's perspective and he reasons you through it. Sometimes we're not good at reasoning through why is my landing in that decision bad? Or is it bad or good? And like our storyline that we're looking at here in Chronicles with, the, with Jeroboam needing to make a decision, he goes to the youth and he goes to the elders, and then in the end he, he does what? He chooses poorly, right? I was thinking of Indiana Jones, choose wisely. <laughs> yeah, you know, I can see, the, do you remember the Coca-Cola commercial and they're sliding into the kitchen, the refrigerator's opening, everything's flooded with light and he's grabbing the Coca-Cola cans that says choose wisely. <laughs> I love that. Okay, <laughs> my brain. <laughs> okay, so Chronicles then, on the whole, the theme is about who? Rehoboam, right?
Second Chronicles? Oh, I'm on the wrong, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong column. I got to move myself over. Thank you. <laughs> and concerning Rehoboam, in the end, what do you say in, in totality? How do you want to title this particular record? What does he do? What is the event in chapter 10? How did you title your chapter 10? Okay, say it again. I said tribes divide. Is how I okay, Israel divides. Okay, that is one of the things that happens at the end. Israel divides. Now, we want to say why it divides in here too, though, because the storyline gives that to us. What happens with Rehoboam in this story? I'm sorry, I got three or four voices, but I didn't hear. Okay, he refuses to listen to the people. That is, that, is one, that is one way of saying it. Or he listens to the youth instead of the elders. Or he forsook the counsel of, the, of his elders. However you want to say that. But in the end, Rehoboam, he refused to listen to the people. And that is, in essence, what the, the heart of that whole message was is he did not listen to the people the heart of the message is when the people are crying out to you to you as a leader over whatever organization you're in that our our hardship is too much for us the things that you put on us is beyond our abilities we're we're at a breaking point we need some relief and when Rehoboam went to his elders and they, what did the elders tell him to do Listen to the people. And I loved the way he said it. He says, if you will be a servant to the people, then what will the people do? The people will serve you all the days of your reign. Well, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you can see application in, in, in the principles of leadership and governing. And certainly, you know, matter, no matter where you are in your political affiliations on things, you can look at either side and say, is there a lesson in this for, for our leaders to be learning? Maybe we should send them a copy of the Bible and say, you know what, go through the kings and the chronicles and look at all the things that the kings did or did not do that were their undoing. And I would certainly say that in this case, we have an issue here where, where when the king refused to listen to the people, what was the end result? Your next major event, Israel divides. They say, fine, house of Judah. See, it to, see to yourself, and they go to their own tribes, to their own home. And from that point forward, they stop being a support system to Judah. Yes? Underlying all of this is still the sovereignty of God. Absolutely. Very interesting. Yeah. Okay, so now there's another nuance we could talk about. When it comes to the sovereignty of God in this storyline, and you, what, what you do see about Rehoboam now, the question might be what about Rehoboam and his 
re refusing to hear the people. What might be, especially if you're skeptical about free will, <laughs> what might be what might be your problem with the storyline that God that he is he did not listen to the people because this was from the Lord. What might be your problem with that? Do you have a problem at all with that thought? Okay, we know the storyline previous to this has been that why was God going to take away the, some of the, the kingdom? Why was he dividing the kingdom because of Solomon? Because Solomon had not followed the commandments of God. And since Israel was on their land by covenant, between him and God as an, a nation was in covenant with God, this national covenant was being broken by its leader. And therefore God said to Solomon, because you have not kept my commandments as a national leader, as a king over these people, I'm going to remove part of this kingdom from you. However, I'm not going to remove it all. Why? For the sake of my servant David, who was faithful, who followed me, although he had sinned, but, but he kept the commandments of God to keep Israel following God and worshiping God in the way that God said. So as a leader, he did what was the essential. Keep God's people worshiping God. Right? Another, would you say there's another lesson in that for us as a, as a people too if we want to? In answer to your question, a lot of people could say, well, God was just controlling this and he made it all knew what was going to happen, which is why he had Ahijah say what he said mm -hmm. to Jeroboam. I also thought it was very interesting that God chose to take ten. Why did God not take five and five? Or why did God not take two away and him get to keep the other ten? Why did he do it in the order that he did? With, the, with a bigger, broader knowledge that you already have about the whole picture on Israel and where they end up, why do you think God took gave 10 away and only retained two. Or okay, so there's a there's that would be a good perspective to look at it from the perspective that a very small little uh, tribe, basically two small tribes, Gen uh, Benjamin and Judah being small and inconsequential in comparison to the 12 when it was whole, and yet it retains its power and its strength, which we see him do in the, the following chapter. That, that could be really cool because then you look at that and you go, wow, God can even protect that little tiny spot. That's like a little dot on the planet Earth, and God is still protecting. That's a pretty powerful message, isn't it? Okay, so then there's the, also the quality about the bloodline of, of Christ and that, that he will come through the house of David and that he will come to be what? The king over, for, in, of his people, right? And, and that he will be um, king of Judah as well, right? So I mean, all those are prophetic things that we have to keep in mind that God's protecting that as well. Is there a factor in here pertaining to the people on the whole? Do you think God is looking at the nation on the whole also as individual people and saying about them, well, I can see where this is going, right? 
in regards to worshiping God, when God did divide these nations up, where did the majority of the people land as far as their worship of God? Because what we saw with Jeroboam is what does he establish? His own worship system, right? And what, and what did the people do? Did those people rise up against him and say, no, we will not. We will not. We swore to God we would worship him in the place that he chose. Oh, gosh. You mean, you mean it was silent on that subject? There was nothing? Some did, but, but actually, it, it actually it only speaks about one specific group, and that was the Levites and the priests, right? A few. But for how long? Three years. Okay, so very interesting to think on that as well. It's like, wow, this is interesting. Maybe God said, well, you can have all those ten because, you know, <laughs> they're, gonna, they're, they're wayward anyway. I'm going to maintain, try to maintain this smaller section, this smaller uh, area of those who are going to be closest to the temple and to the, the worship of me, and therefore it will be easier to maybe maintain the, that smaller portion. I, I don't know. It's all speculation. But it's interesting to consider how God did this. You know, why did he give away ten and only keep two, right, to, to uh, his house of David who was faithful, right? All right, so we've got Rehoboam refuses to listen to the people, and Israel divides. Okay, now let's go to 11. Same thing there. Yes, uh-huh. On Solomon? I know. Remember I told you that they bring in some of their own commentary on this, and it has to do with writings of the Jewish, uh, I don't know if it's, it's not the Torah. Who, what are the other writings that the, um, the Jews have? Do you know? Anyway, there's the, the other rabbinical writings, and that's where they go to get some of this information. Well, but we don't. It's not in scripture. So just keep that in mind. That was why I gave you that warning when I read it. I said, remember, some of this is from extra biblical information. And it's okay to read it and kind of ponder on the possibilities of it. But we don't see anywhere in scripture where it tells us that Solomon became benign as a leader and that he was ousted and that his wives took over. I just don't believe it. Because God put Solomon in there as king, and then he, he ordained who the next king would be to come in. So it does not make, to me, like sense that it would be true. It's, it's more like gossip, you know. But, and, it's, and it's extra biblical writings. The other thing, you know, going back to the conversation about why would it still be significant and important for it to understand that the writings of Solomon, although Solomon himself was was weak in his faith, he was still a powerful and very um, God-ordained writer of the word. Why do we know that? Why can we hold our, hang our hats on that? Because he's in there. He's in the canonized word of God, which God ordained, right? And 2 Timothy tells us what about scripture? All scripture is inspired by God. And uh, in Peter, he says, uh, old men of old wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, right? They didn't write of themselves. They were, they were writing from the Spirit of God himself. So the records that we're reading, even the historical records, are in divinely inspired writing that God wants us to, pres to preserve. And then he says in Romans 15, which I put in my email to you all last week. Um, actually, Lois sent it out for me, but I 
I wrote it. <laughs> I wrote it. <laughs> um, that, um, that these things were written for our edification, right? That these things were written down that we would learn from them. So even though Solomon in the end was a weak vessel, was he still a vessel of God in the writing of, of the things that he wrote? Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, Song, Song of Solomon, right? He wrote those things under divine inspiration. We have a record in Kings of God giving him an extra measure of divine wisdom. So for him to actually write the divinely written record of wisdoms for us, it would be behoove all of us to consider, yes, those are valuable to read and to study. All right, even though the vessel is weak, the power in the message is who? God himself. It came from God, right? Not from man. Okay, so hopefully that answers that question. All right, now let's go on to chapter 11 very quickly so we can, I'm really anxious to get to 13. Tell me what happened in 2 Chronicles 11. Okay, Rehoboam establishes... Um, very interesting to me that about Rehoboam, there's a, a key word in there that I that links him back to a Solomon. What was it? Did you notice it when you marked your keywords at the very close of his of his record? In 2 Chronicles 11. Wisdom. wisdom. Talks about him using wisdom. In regards to what? That's right. Consider in, in relationship to, to his descendants. Now, this is very interesting to me, too, because we have another example earlier of someone who really did not do that very well at all. Do you remember who didn't handle his kids very well? And we had revolt after revolt David interesting to me that David did not do as well so apparently Rehoboam may have considered some of the records of the writings of his grandfather David and some of the the shortcomings of what happened as a result of that and when he was given a very small reign he figured out that he needed to uh, divide and conquer <laughs> so he divided his sons out into the land, gave them rulership or, or governing in their little areas, and kept them basically separate. So what does that do when it comes to um, the relationships, the inner relationships between the brothers? It does what? Okay, in, in many ways, it may make them feel more like they have ownership of some of this too, right? So there's a loyalty to do a good job for dad because this also affects me, right? Okay. What about the inner bickering between them? Does it cut down on rivalry a little bit? Because physically, you rem how many of you got brothers and sisters and they're, they're not all great relationships? And distance can really make a, an improvement. <laughs> 
So, well, you know, it's a factor, I just have to say. So it says that when Rehoboam, he, he basically spread his sons out across the land in various cities to have them govern and watch over it, basically be a support to him in watching and keeping an eye out, and are people staying in line, and are things safe, and are the enemies trying to come in at this border or that border, right? And so once he went in and fortified cities, and he built, and he built up walls, and he... And he uh, put uh, supplies in various places. He he really did a great job, very much like Solomon, don't you think? He seems to have a great deal of wisdom in the way that he handled his small section of rulership. So Jer at this point, Rehoboam seems to be doing a good job in that regard. Then the more significant point, since we're still in Chronicles, is his relationship to God. How did he do there? But he set him up according to the, the law. So he actually did it right, correctly. Because he did it. No, you're in the wrong one. You're. Oh, I, was, I went back to Rehoboam. I am so sorry. In my mind, I went back to. I went back to Rehoboam. I went back to. Okay, Rehoboam establishes his kingship. Wait a minute, I'm lost here. Hold on. Re okay, but you're talking about Jeroboam, yes. But Rehoboam, what did Rehoboam do? Yes. Yes. To where Rehoboam was, correct. And what? And in regards to that, then what was Rehoboam doing in his worship of God? No, that's Jeroboam. That's Jeroboam. That was my, okay, that's where we got confused. Woo. I was losing my, my flot. I know, I know. Okay, it's, yeah, verse 14, for Jeroboam and his sons had excluded them, those Levites, from that system. So in the end, okay, now that we got that little misconfusion straightened out. What happened is they gave you a little excerpt of a tiny bit of information about what's going on with Jeroboam by making a contrast for you to see what was Rehoboam doing in comparison to what Jeroboam was doing at this point. At this point, we see Rehoboam doing what in regards to worshiping of the Lord? According to the word of the Lord. So he was, he was acting wisely in that regard. So, um, I'm sorry, say that again. He, he, Jeroboam, set up priests of his own for the high places for the stayers and the calves which he had made. That's Jeroboam. And he said, these from all the tribes of Israel who set their hearts on seeking the Lord, the God of Israel, followed them, them who? The Levites, back to Jerusalem 
to sacrifice to the Lord their God. So they strengthened the kingdom of Judah, and they supported Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, for three years. So basically what we see here is that for three years, when the kingdom first divided, we know Jeroboam established a false worship system. Rehoboam, however, he, he, is, he strengthened and he built up basically because the Levites from all those ten tribes had to come into Jerusalem to live. Because, huh? They chose to, yes. Well, because they had no choice. If they were going to be in the land with, with, under Jeroboam, who were they going to be, what were they going to be doing? Nothing, right? Because Jeroboam had rejected them as priests. And they don't have land, they don't have anything. And their entire livelihood and their entire life's work is about the temple. So they really had no choice, Kathleen. They had to come in. So they came in, and, and for those who did not, we get to see that when we get to 1 Kings 13. Okay, we're going to see what happened with some of those prophets and priests who chose not to come in and do what the rest of them did. Okay. What does that tell you? It meant, very interesting and kind of quirky, don't you think? In the storyline, they're talking about basically the big chunky things that are occurring, that Rehoboam's kingdom is following the Lord and, and he's strengthening it and the Levites have come in to strengthen and to support him in all of these things that he's doing. They're recognizing him as the king over, over Judah and Benjamin and so forth. And then there's Rehoboam who set up a false worship system, right? But then it says that... But, Jeroboam, false worship system. So I know those names are too close together. <laughs> right, so, so if I mess them up, just understand. <laughs> okay, so, so um, don't, don't mess them. So Rehoboam, he's, he's king of Judah. The Israelite or the Levites have come in, and their worship system is good good in the eyes of the Lord. God is blessing them. And it says many of the people then also from the rest of the land, those other 10, for three years they were doing what? They were coming in and worshiping where they were supposed to be. So it, you know, in a way they were kind of defying their, their new king and just coming in anyway and worshiping the Lord. But it put a limit on how long that went on for three years so what does that tell you that probably begins to happen after three years they got tired of me of going down there or and or what else huh well they we're not there yet but yes <laughs> okay and or what ha what happens if you get surrounded by a worship system and everybody's on board with it and if all you're exposed to all the time is a religion which is, you know, different from what you had been before. But however, here's the interesting thing. How different is the new worship system that Jeroboam has established? Absolutely. Uh, on the surface, it's got many of the same things. He's got what? Give me something. Priests and altars and feasts and and festivals, sacrifices, burning of incense on the altar. I mean, so you, basically everything kind of superficially looks the same, right? And he even, he even, I know, but yes, for, for purists like you, 
you know. I'm sorry, but, you know, get, get on board with the rest of us. We're, we're worshiping this new thing that Jeroboam gave us, and after all, we are loyal to our king, right? So can you see that over time, in a three-year, I'm being sarcastic, obviously, but, you know, in this three-year time, what happened is eventually these people, what does the scripture say about bad company? It corrupts what? Good morals. And so over the course of three years, little by little, the majority of those people then who had been faithfully coming back into Jerusalem apparently are going to stop because the, the scripture gives us a limited time. It says three years. For three years, they did a good job. <laughs> and then it began to wane, right? Very interesting insight there. Yep, that's what it says. Yeah. And so what, it's, what it basically shows us is there was a transition period of about three years. And in time, the people who were in the land that uh, Jeroboam uh, was in control of, that he was king over and reigned over, in time, those people became, became loyal to Jeroboam and began to worship the, under the system that he provided for them. kind of sad to, to think it only took three years, <laughs> but that's basically what scripture says. Now, that's not, we're not going to draw a line in sand to say that nobody ever came in. We know that there's always a remnant that would have probably remained faithful and still come in, but the scripture doesn't address them. It basically handles the, the nation as a whole and says, on a whole, the nation only managed to hang on to God for three years, and then those, those ten uh, nations, those ten tribes, abandoned that. They stopped coming in to worship the Lord. So that means that they were staying around and hanging out with Jeroboam and his new worship system. Very interesting. So your title there, Rehoboam, uh, in chapter 11. Hold on, let me look here again. In chapter 11, we see that um, he fortifies cities. He uh, he strengthens basically the worships of, of God and for his people and the Levites came in. And then we see that he acted wisely. He worships the Lord. He establishes his kingdom. And I, I just put this on there. He acted wisely. With his sons. Although there were some questions that popped up in there. And he sought many wives for them. <laughs> Uh, that was a problem for Solomon. Do you think that's going to probably become a, a problem for these boys as well at some point? Although I did go in and look around at some um, parallel uh, readings on that, different Bible translations on that verse, because you see how it's written for them, is written in uh, a, a kind of a cursory thing. There's another way that it said, it just says he procured wives for them. Because he had many sons, therefore he had to procure many wives because he had many sons to provide for. So it could be seen either way. Apparently, apparently, when you're a king and you're a prince, you only marry who your father sanctions. Okay. Yeah, I know. So our American system is so rebellious. <laughs> All right. Okay, very interesting. Okay, now we're ready to go to our First Kings 13, which I, is where I really want to spend uh, the rest of our time on, and I'm glad we got a good 
40 minutes anyway to handle this. Now, for, pardon? Yeah, Disney movies out. Why? Oh, I know. Like Jasmine, she gets to pick who she wants, and the, and the sultan says, okay, yeah, you're right. See, I've watched that one recently. <laughs> okay, you're right, you're right about that one. Good, good catch, Diane. Okay, 1 Kings 13. I'm sorry it disturbed you, Margaret. You're going to love it when we're done with this. There are so many possibilities for lessons in here. Let's just go real quickly. Uh, verses 1 to 10, we see who introduced and what's the storyline in those first 10 verses. We see, we see uh, a character introduced to us, and what's his name? The man of God. No name. I think that's very interesting. He, does not, he is not given a man, but he is given a very strong title. And what does that tell you about him? He is a true believer. He is a faithful walker with God, right? So he is the man of God. So a man of God comes from, um, from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord. And Kay had asked you to look it up and do your, you know, and it was interesting a little bit. But did, were there any significant points on the map that somebody saw that I didn't? Because I didn't really see, I didn't catch what she was pointing us to. Did somebody catch it? Okay, maybe it was just for general knowledge. Where is Bethel in relationship to Jerusalem? North. <laughs> About 12 miles north. <laughs> okay, so now we have, we have this man from Bethlehem, or from J Jerusalem, rather, who's come up to Bethel. And, and he did so how? Who sent him? By the word of the Lord. And he did so... And this is really interesting because the setup says, who was physically present when this man of God arrived? Jeroboam. I think it's really interesting. Obviously, the man of God made uh, the, the choice to arrive at a time when he knew that Jeroboam would be at Bethel uh, doing his sacrifices. So it must have been maybe a feast or something was going on, something specific that would draw him there to that on that day. And so he arrives, he stands before the altar, and he cries against the altar. And what does he say? What is his prophetic word about it? Very interesting. Why is that interesting? Who is this Josiah? He is a, how far into the future are we talking? About 300 years. Some, some estimates are 290. Some are as much as 360. But it's basically, K had us do it, figure it out. It was like 309 or something years. You're talking a future, future king, right? So in that regard, how would it be possible for this man to have any credibility that what he's saying was true? You had to have a sign. It had to be accompanied by a sign. Do you remember when Jesus was on the earth? What was he accompanied by? Signs. All kinds of signs, wonders, and miracles in order to be evidence that he was who he said he was. So we have the exact same thing going on here. We have signs given, multitudes of them actually, quite a few. These signs were, were, were powerful. They should have been powerful for every single person that was present and watching, including the king Jeroboam, right? Okay, so we see him give a sign. And what was going to be the sign? The altar was going to split. However, apparently God seemed to understand that that would not be significant enough to catch the attention of the king's heart. So what does he do concerning a sign with the king? 
he makes it very personal, <laughs> right? He gives a sign that takes it to a very personal level for this king so that he has the king's attention. Otherwise, the king would have just been oblivious probably, right? But when it hurts you specifically, when it comes against you specifically, when, when an event in your life is happening to you specifically, do you pay closer attention than when it's just something going on in the world around you? Yeah. When, when someone dies in a car accident and it's your family member or your best friend or your people from your church that we've just had a, a, a bus crash that so sad, all those young lives gone, right? And some of them older. One was an 80-year-old, I think she was 80 years old. They were all seniors. They had, oh, were they? they had been, when I first heard it, I thought it was like high school seniors. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Well, that, that makes better sense because I know one of them was Linda Schmelkoff's, uh a family member, I think she said. So an 80-year-old woman who passed away. I, I've got it on my email. I'll have to pull it up later and we'll talk about it. Okay, so he makes this sign very per First he gives a general sign. I'm going to give you a sign. The altar is going to be split open or split apart and the ashes are going to pour out. And then... What happens after he makes this proclamation? What does the king do? Hey, yeah, don't see, do not ever point at somebody, Susan, because you've got four fingers pointing back, right? So I was always told. But he stuck his hand out and says, seize that man, basically, right? And when he did that, when he says, seize that man, what happened? His hand shriveled and apparently locked in place. And he could not withdraw his fingers back in or his hand back in. And so in doing that, paralyzing his hand, it says it dried up. Now, I don't know what that means exactly. There's probably a medical thing. Did anybody do the medical research on this by chance? Or is anybody here medic? The tendons or the muscles, there's something. Anyway, it would be very interesting to hear the rest of that story too. But anyway, so he does this. And then what happens? Oh, my God. My, blow me away. Wait a minute. You were just going to have me arrested, and now you want me to pray for you? And to, and to my God? Yeah, right. First of all, why isn't he praying? Isn't that his God also, right? The Lord is God, supposed to be, right? And because he's, even though he set up this false worship system, he's actually tried to, in, in his own way, through through um, deception, he's trying to convince the people that it's the same God that they're worshiping, right? Remember the woman at the well when Jesus has his conversation? Well, you worship there and we worship here, but in her mind, she's thinking they're worshiping the same thing, right? Well, you say you're supposed to go to this mountain. We say we're going to go to this mountain. And Jesus says, I tell you, you will worship me in spirit and in truth. And so very interesting to me that here's Jeroboam who's just basically said, seize that man. His hand is dried up, and now he's going back to the very man he was going to seize and says, please pray and have, have my hand healed or restored. So what happens? He does. Very interesting. I'm not too sure I would want to be that gracious. I would probably do it, but I can't. I would probably be a little bit like Jonah, looking for a mountain to go and sit upon and watch God just, you know, fry him. <laughs> Right? Because I don't know that my heart would be in it. <laughs> because the guy just tried to kill me. However, we are learning very interesting things. What do you see about this man of God at this point? 
What is his character like? What is his, seems to be his motivation in all this? He seems to be really faithful to the Lord. I think about Joshua when he was telling the people to go on to the land. What was his command to them? Be brave and courageous, right? And I think this man is brave and courageous because literally he was going from the frying pan into the fire, so to speak, but I mean, he was going right into the lion's mouth when he left Judah and went into this place where they were worshiping. He went there to stand before the king in the day when the king would be there, who is the most powerful man in their kingdom. He is an outsider, obviously, because he came, and they know so, that he is from Judah. And he proclaims against the altar which this king has set up. What do you, what do you think about this guy? He is a man of God. He's fearless. He is really sincerely committed to God and doing God's will regardless of the cost. Do you think he factored in the fact that he might get arrested in his thinking when he went? I would think so. He may have thought to, although if he went there feeling that he was confident God was going to be with him and bring him home, because God said, when you return, come a different way. So maybe in his mind he, he thought that. But that's another question. Why did God tell him to go a different way when he came back? I mean, this is up for debate totally, but what do you think? Margaret? I think maybe that is it, really, in, in my thinking, because here he is going in to this people's land, and he's proclaiming something against their altar and against their priests, right? A judgment, a sentence. And in doing that, do you think the people might just get a little bit upset with him? And so if he went back through the same way he had gone, they could, have, they could sabotage him, right? Possibly. So that, that might be it. There, there are... Any other thoughts? Did you see anything in your studies about that? Huh? Maybe just to test him to see if he would be obedient. Maybe. I mean, there's a lot of possibilities out there. To me, the most clear one would be that for his safety, so that he would be safe going home. Okay, so we have in 1 to 10, man of God cries against the altar of Jeroboam. The king's hand dries up, then he prays, and his hand is restored. Um, and then we get, in, we get to the part where then the king says what to, Jer to um, the man of God? Yes, and what had his instructions been? Do not eat or drink in that place. Now, why might that be? Does anybody have an idea? Yes. That, okay, very good. Because the very essence of eating and drinking with someone in the Middle Eastern culture is all about covenanting and friendship. And so, for instance, when you see, you see that story um, or any storyline where it says, and Abraham fed them and he, you know, and he wanted to... I thought, though, of Revelation. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will come in to me and sup with me, right, and I with him. And so if you will, I will, the door will be open to you if you will knock. And when you enter in, you will sup with me. So again, it's, it's just an allusion to the idea of covenant meal and relationship and friendship, 
right? So in this case, that is indeed what it is. is so why do you think God gave him that instruction? He didn't want what? He didn't want the wrong impression because he sent this man to condemn what they were doing. And he in no way wanted this man to therefore be identified as if he was in friendship with them or that he was okay with the things that they were doing, right? And he wanted to send a clear message that God is rejecting this and that this is a judgment against you. So he didn't want there to be a confusion, basically, in this. This is why. I thought about the storyline of Moses, though, when I thought about this. Remember when Moses was sent to go back to lead the people out, right? Okay, keep that in mind for a second. What is the next thing that happens then? Who does he meet next? Okay, first we had a man of God. And he... um, he proclaims judgment. He's, he is faithful to God. He's faithful in obedience. He rejects um, reward and eating with the king. Okay, so this, so, so far, so good. Because and the reason I want to kind of make a list, on, and this is very short. I just did that out of my mind real quickly, so it's not even word for word. But when you think about the things that's going on with this young man at this point, we see a really solid man of God. We see that he was given a job by God, a mission by God, and a very important one, a very public one, right? And this man followed it very precisely and he did exactly what God did and then in the midst of that God gave signs which shows that God was with him right because the other sign about Josiah coming and doing what he is going to do which is to to take the bones of those priests and put them on the altar and burn them on the altar and crush that altar down that all happens but it's not going to happen for 300 years so it needed to be accompanied by a sign in order that the people would believe it and so he, he gave him the sign of the altar splitting in two. He also gave him another sign in the midst of that, which was the withering of the hand and then the healing of the sand. You could actually say it's three signs right there. And so he healed the hand of the, of the king. So, so far, so good. We've got us a nice, solid man of God, right? Now we have a problem that's going to show up here. In, chapter, in verse 11, who does he meet? An old prophet. So now when you see the old prophet come in. Very good. Now, you could, you could come to that conclusion just because you are brilliant. You. You're welcome. Can I that yes, of course. <laughs> you got my word on that one. But you could also come to that conclusion based off of some of the hints that we've had in the text so far. What do we know about the Levites and the priests in the previous chapter? They had left that ten kingdom portion and had gone back to Jerusalem to serve God at his true temple, right? Apparently this man, calling himself a prophet of God, and and he might likely have been so. Again, this just shows us it's the vessel is nothing. It's the God behind him that matters, right? So we got the old prophet, may or may not have been a true prophet of God prior, 
We don't know. Just calls himself that. And what we see him doing now is what? What are some qualities that we're going to see about this old man at this point? Yeah. For, For one thing, he lies. He lies to the man of God. Yeah, you know, that is a good point. I kind of missed over, I kind of cursed over that one. That's a good point, Lisa. Okay, so um, the man of, wait a second, let me switch my page here. There seems to be a little bit of a seduction going on here too, right? In the relationship between the man and the, the, the prophet and the young man. How does he go about seducing this young man into disobeying God? Okay, he lies. He fabricates a uh, angel visit, and he cut. Yes, he identifies with him. Now, this is really, I think. The most intriguing part of this whole storyline in here is just the way that this prophet goes about deceiving this um, the way that he goes about deceiving this young man. Okay, and there's also the issue about the fact that he's called old. Now, why do you think the scripture says he's old? What what what? What quality does that bring into the storyline regarding this, this other man of God? Okay, there you go. Your elders are supposed to be respected, and they're, supposed to, they're smarter than you. And so in some regards, it seems like the fact that he is older already kind of puts a little uh, a nuance around the whole thing for this man of God because it'd be like you or I going to in the presence of Billy Graham. You know, who's, who's the smarter cookie in the room, right? We know it's going to be the Billy Grahams of the world. So when you go into their presence, so in this, in this regards, the fact that they keep referring to him as the old prophet, they don't name him, but he's the old prophet, that seems to have a quality of the storyline that he wants you, God wants us to pick up on. And I relate it back to the previous account where we saw um, Rehoboam go to the elders and go to the young men for advice. And who should he have listened to in that case? The elders. But here we have an old man who we now have said he lies, a, he lies to the man of God and he fabricates an angel visit in order to, to coerce him into agreeing to something, right? So what we really see going on here is seduction and lies of the world. Now who is the author of that? Satan, that's straight from the pits of hell. Yes? Absolutely. So there's another whole other lesson, isn't it? I, I picked up a few verses on this I wanted you guys to go through. First of all, go to Galatians 1, 6 to 8. Who wants that one? I need a, a reader for me. Donna's got it. Okay. I also need Matthew seven fifteen. You want to catch that one for me? 
Okay. And then 1 John 4, 1. Who wants that one? 1 John 4, 1. Who wants to read? Okay, Susan. Thank you, Susan. Okay, so this is just three verses. But this subject of false prophets being in the world and how we are supposed, what are we supposed to do when a person comes to us and says something that we know is contrary with the, to what the word of God has been to us? Now, in this case, this man had a literal word from God. Go tell them this prophetic thing. And it was a, a, a foretelling of the future, a future event. But for us, we have the written canonized word of God where it's all there for us. And when you and I study that, that is the authority that we are to stand on. That is the word that we are to hold fast to. And no matter who it is, when they come to us and try to tell us something other than what God has said and what we know God has said, what are we to do? We are to say no, right? And this young man you know, we're, give, we're giving him, though, some understanding in this and that he got seduced by this guy through trickery and seduction. It, doesn't, it does not remove his guilt in it, however, and we see that because God judges, right? All right, so who's got the first one? Okay, Donna. Wow. I mean, that one's about as clear as you get. Even if an angel from heaven comes and gives you a gospel other than that which we have preached, he is to be accursed, right? So even if this prophet had had an angel come to him, even if that had been true and it wasn't, but even if it had been true and if the message was contrary to that which you know God has written in his word, what? You know that there's a religion that's been developed off of this? Yeah. There have been religions established based on a visit from an angel and a message from God, and the people follow that instead of the written, canonized word of God. All right. Let's go to the next one, um, Matthew 7:15. This is Jesus speaking. Wow. So he, he beware of the false prophet who comes to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly he is a ravenous wolf. I translated that to fit this one man. <laughs> I just changed the words ever so slightly. Instead of making it general, I made it specific. He he was a ravenous wolf. Within him there was a he had an agenda of some kind going on, right? And I think that you hit it, Lisa, when you said that this was a man who, very much like Jesus' ministry, when he came, why did so many of the, of the Pharisees and Sadducees and the leaders of the people not want Jesus to be the king that was coming? What was going to happen to their worship system? Their jobs were going to be lost. This man, he, he saw this man's uh, prophetic word to him, to, toward the altar and the priests of that altar as a direct threat to him and his basically livelihood all right he apparently was one of those who was probably not of the line of levite but they had been selected and been made a prophet or he could have been a levite and a priest but one who had abandoned and gone with jerob with uh, jeroboam yes yes 
Either way, not good. Okay, First John 4, 1. Wow. Okay. What are you supposed to do? What is the warning here? Test the spirits to see whether they are from God or not. So meaning, testing the spirits means if a spiritual word is given to you from someone, anyone, right? If I, as your teacher, stand here and tell you something, but if I tell you something that is contrary to the word of God, what are you supposed to do? Yeah, fire me. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> yes, true. You know what? And you, I think about the Bereans. What did, what did they say? Uh, what did Paul say about the, the Bereans in comparison to the Thessalonians? They were of more noble-mindedness because they would look to test to see if what Paul was teaching was true, right? In this particular scenario, we have a man who's had God's word given to him, He's been sent on a mission. Look at how, how, how he was faithful in his obedience. He was bold. He was courageous. He went and did it. And when he was tempted by the king of all people to come and eat with him, that would have been like, the, like going to the White House or, you know, or going to you know, a, a movie star's house. I mean, this was a big deal, right? And yet he was, he was calm, collected, and he, re he rejected it. We now know why. Why must he not go? Because it would show an a friendship or an affection or an affiliation as if you're giving a stamp of approval on what they're doing. That's why in the New Testament it says that if you have a brother who is sinning and you warn them and warn them, at some point you might need to withdraw your fellowship from them and, and not even eat a meal with them. Because you need to let them know that you do not approve of their lifestyle. You do not approve of the sin that's going on in their life. And as long as they are claiming to be God's children, if they are not being living in obedience to God and you've confronted them, you might need to withdraw. You don't eat a meal with them. Very interesting, right? Okay, so the principle has never changed. It's in the old and it's in the new. So here we have this young man. And what he failed to do, though, although he did that so well in the beginning, when he hit the old prophet, the old prophet... He buddies up to him. I thought this was very interesting, though. He, um, I don't think I've got it on this list here. The old man, I don't have it in here. I do want to read one more verse, though. Go to 1 Peter 5.8. This old man, though, he seduced him. He says, I'm a prophet just like you. You and I are buds. You know, we're friends. Yes, and how easily they were co co uh, coerced to go into doing it. The, the idea that Israel only remained, or the, the, the Israel, the ten kingdoms, Israel, only remained faithful for three years tells you how easily they were seduced by people who came to them and said, but I'm a prophet, and I had a vision from an angel, and God told me this. There are, you know, we have churches that are filled with people who come up to you, and I've had it happen to me. I have a word to you from God. Like, I'm supposed to, you know, take that word. Now, I'm not saying that that can't happen, but it better line up with the word of God. 
And it better be a, a spiritual message that has a spiritual implication because it, uh, the stock market is not God's concern in my life, okay? Right? Right? All right. All right, so 1 Peter 5 eight. who has that handy? Who wants to read? Okay, Celeste. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy and the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Wow. Okay, so here you go. you got a false prophet, and who? And at the heart of him is he's Satan. Satan is working through him. He is, he, it says he wanders to and fro about the, the earth, seeking whom he may devour. His mission is to take you down. What do you think happened in this case? I thought that verse was very interesting because then what do you see with the young man? What, what, what happens to him? He's, he's killed by a lion, but not eaten. And, the, and he's found by others. And where, where is the lion? Has the lion run away? He sits next to him and the dog. And he's not even, okay, so why, what is that a whole storyline about? Why the lion sitting there, it's not natural. Another sign. And what does this sign tell us? What is it supporting? That it was God's judgment against the man that he died. When he died, this was from God. So he gave a supernatural sign so that people would know the man just didn't get eaten by a lion or bit or killed or whatever. Right, no, the lion just sits there. So, so it's a sign. That's the whole point. This is a sign that God, this was God's judgment against him. Why? Oh, my goodness, why? The man was so faithful. He did so good. It's not his fault he got tricked. It's not his fault he got tricked, right? <laughs> okay, yes, yes. So what? You, th- considering the scenario that we're looking at here where this is a very public mission that he was sent on, right? Throughout all Israel. Would you call this a significant time in the history of Israel? Yes. yes. Um, and so when this man of God did well, God continued to support him. Then all of a sudden, he falls into the clutches of this man. Now, what, wh- where did he go wrong? Well, yeah, the very first thing this man of God should have done was gone back to the Lord and sought out God and said, God, is it okay for me to do this? Is this truly a man from you? He had already said no. Okay, yes, he had already said no, but, but even still, you could still go back and ask God. But when he went back and asked God, if God did not answer, what was the answer? No. no. I already said no. Why are you coming back and asking me this? And not only that, but I have to ask you this question. Do you think this young man is fully aware of the concept of eating a meal and drinking with someone, of what that picture portrays or conveys? So when you consider this prophet, we've already analyzed the scripture, and we've come to see that this prophet is not a prophet from God himself. At this point, he's either a, a, a um, um, apostate priest of God, or he was never actually a real priest of God. He was made priest by Jeroboam in in the new land that he's in, right? Either way. He calls himself a prophet. He says he's old. Um, And so he's got this authority kind of thing going on. He's older than the guy. He says he has an angel. An angel of his. And he flat out lies to him. And then he tries to buddy up to him and say, I'm a prophet just like you. You know, you and me, we're friends. You can come eat with me because we're like the same. 
right? Okay, so now let's get to that. Okay, so he, he's, why was it necessary for him to die? Why did he have to die? Yes. There's another good little insight. I thought about the Satan being uh, like a lion prowling about seeking whom he may devour and there was the lion and he had and he and he had and he had been devoured by the lies of the, of Satan though. And so that's what took him down because he got deceived. He shouldn't have gotten deceived. What he should have done was hold hold fast just as he had done up here and not eaten. But he got deceived. He got tr he, he, a little bit of trickery into it. Yes. And then he did. Now, this is a, an interesting part. Okay. So we know the, the old man is at this point in his life not a true prophet. However, what does God do? God uses him. And he, does he prophesy something which is true? So what does that tell you about the writings of Solomon? Even if Solomon's heart wasn't right with God? His word is still what? True. So does that make sense? I think that's a good point. Okay, I don't know why, but it came to me. Yes. So he spoke truly at that point. Yes. And he realizes then that the other prophecy also doesn't come true Right. Aha, which brings us to the next part of the storyline then, right? Because now this old man has seen the young man die after he has prophesied he was going to die, Right. And so now he's going, and he sees a sign, sees the lion sitting there. So we've got a supernatural sign. So he's not only got the information from what occurred here with all of its signs, but now he's got his own sign in the situation that he's been directly um, used by God in, in spite of himself. It's kind of like Balaam, I think. Now this, this man of God says um, to his sons what? Go, let's go get this young man. Let's bury him. And he says, and when I die, what are you going to do? You're going to bury me with him. Why? Be Becky, did you think this went through? What did you come up with? I was obedient, but now I'm not. <laughs> yes. Yes. Now, well, that's a good question. Do you think that this negates his spiritual rewards with God because he lost his physical life? No, it does not. So keep that in mind. Just because he lost his physical life does not mean that he lost relationship with God, that he wasn't saved in this scenario, okay? Okay, affiliation with him, see, we are buddies, we are alike, okay, maybe. I saw more, the old prophet hears this uh, prophecy against Bethel, and they all go for at Bethel, you know, he knows what the, what the man of God had said, and so he's like testing him to see, are you a true prophet, mm -hmm. you know, and probably didn't think he was a true prophet, because he didn't want to believe that prophecy, and when the young man eats with him, contrary to what God says, he assumes Right. And then, of course, when God speaks through him and says, you know, the young man mm -hmm. is not going to go to mm -hmm. the grave of the 
his father. And it immediately happened. Right. You so know, you're giving him a lot of benefit of the doubt. So Carrie, you're too kind. Yes, you're right about, about a lot of the point, those points, right. And you're just saying that his intentions was actually better than the, the rest of us are thinking he's really... That Bethel's not, okay, exactly, okay, exactly, all right, so now I'm going to, I'm going to preempt a smidgen on th things, I want you guys to go and look, hold on here, let's see where we, we are going to go to uh, 2 Kings 23, 18, because we're, it's a ways off, right, but we're, we're, we're jumping forward to Josiah, correct, and, and a little tiny bit of the story. I'm not going to give you the whole thing, and I don't want you to get wrapped up in the whole thing because you're going to get there at, at, at some point in Series 7 or 8 probably. <laughs> I don't know where we're going to be when we get there. But we, at, at some point we will get into Second Kings. But we know that the prophet prophesied about a man named Josiah that he would come one day and he would destroy that altar, right? And that the bones of the priests, of its priests, would be burned upon the altar, correct? So someone read that verse in 2 Kings 23, 18. Who has it? Do you have that one, Brenda? Yes. Let him alone, let no one disturb his bones. So they left his bones undisturbed with the bones of the prophet who came from Samaria. Wow. Okay, so what happened? Did you all hear that story? Did you have your own scriptures open? In essence, what happened was because the man of God, I mean the... Um, the old prophet was buried in the same grave with the man of God who brought the prophecy. When Josiah, 300 years later, comes along, and he does exactly as God said, when he sees the grave of the, young, of the man of God, he says to them, what? Leave that grave alone because he was the one who made this proclamation right? So he honored the man of God. What happened to the bones of the old prophet, therefore? His bones were also safe. If you know a little bit about the Jewish, um, I don't want to call it superstitions, but the, the, part of their mysticism is has to do with the bones. You know, one of the reasons they also have the graves on the side of the hill at at um, Mount of Olives, right? You saw this. Is why? Do you remember why? They'll ascend first, right? Exactly. So they want their bones closed because the bones are going to resurrect and they're going to be the first ones present. With they want to be first in line, basically. All right. So, but they've got a lot of superstition things around that. So one of the things is they don't want their bones destroyed, however, because they. Uh, they felt that that would be like a desecration, you know, and it would dishonor them. And if their bones had been were crushed and put on that altar and burned by Josiah, then it would basically, their eternal rewards and everything affiliated to that would be gone. So this old man, having his bones buried with the, with the, with the man of God, what did he think he was doing? He was, in a, in a superstitious way, he was protecting his eternal life.
Yes. I do too. I think the whole thing was about him trying to protect his position, protect his ministry, his new ministry, protect his, however he could get to heaven, but he was getting there his way. There's another storyline, right? Kathleen? Maybe. Well, and the, the fact that he was an old prophet tells me that he was a prophet possibly even before the splitting of the kingdom, you know, all those things. Possibly, yeah, maybe, yeah. But interesting to me that in the end, what the old man did by having his bones buried in the same grave was protect his bones from being put on that altar and burned. Yes, because he was in the same grave with the man of God, and they didn't. And Josiah said, "Leave that grave alone." Okay, thank you. I'm not used to that hand. <laughs> okay, so here we had. Okay, here's kind of my thought. We see a public ministry, and he was faithful in it. We then saw this same man of God who was faithful, seduced, and lied to, and. Uh, and yet he was held accountable by God. God still disciplined him when it came to the bottom line. Because why? Because the nation was watching. It was a very public moment in the life of the nation. Now, there are two examples of this kind of public thing. Number one was Moses. When he, I told you earlier about Moses. When he was coming um, from the, uh, um, going back into uh, Egypt to get the people to bring them out, Right. On his way down there, he had not circumcised his own son. And he fell ill on his deathbed by God, and God was about to kill him. On his deathbed, he was so sick. And then the rest of the story is then Zephira circumcises the boy, and then God heals Moses. And anyway, then, then God heals him, and, and it goes on. Okay, so that's one example of where God, because Moses was in a very public role and as, as a leader of God's people, and he had not obeyed God's law concerning circumcision, so God was going to put him to death for it. Okay? This other one, yes? Go ahead. Well, and there's that one too. And then he didn't get to go into the promised land. He didn't lose his life for it, but he, he was not allowed to go into the promised land. That's another really good one. I mean, I'm only picking out a couple. The other one's a New Testament one, Ananias and Sapphira, when the church was being built because they lied to the Holy Spirit because God was doing something very public and very profound in history, which was the establishing of the church. God took their lives for that disobedience because God was setting a picture and a standard that he wanted the church to live by. That's why the judgment was so harsh. So on this young man, the judgment was harsh. Now, we, this is a whole other study in that it would be a sinning unto death study. Are there sins that you and I can commit where God will actually take our physical life? Our eternal spiritual life is secure if you're in faith, but, but you can lose a physical life. And is that true? Yes, it is true. And this man is one of those examples where he lost his life for disobeying God because the mission that he had been sent on was so public and so profoundly important at that moment in history that it, ha it required a very public discipline that taught people that, number one, God, where does, where does um, discipline begin? 
at the household of faith. And we saw that in Ezekiel as well. When God did come to judge Israel, where did he start? He started at the threshold of the temple. Amazing. I mean, so, so many possibilities here. Good stuff, you guys.